Hello. There's two children on the front of my book. Um, given that you're all very clever people, have you worked out that one of them is me? So I'm going to tell you about what happened to those two children. Um, we're about seven and eight there. That's me and my brother, Matty. And this is a prize about medicine, but I'm just going to tell you a tiny bit about what happens before medicine becomes involved in our lives. Um, so we, we, it's a miracle we exist at all. We exist because our father ran away from Ireland when he was 15 and jumped on a merchant navy ship, German ship. And some years later, he sailed into Falmouth where he met our mother on the quay. He picked her up. Uh, hey Jude was number one at the time, I think. Um, she was wearing a miniskirt. She was only 14, but he was only 18, so it's not too weird. <laughs> it was a massive scandal because... Um, I, being Irish is great now, but obviously in the, at that time it wasn't. So, it, so my dad was covered in tattoos. Uh, he couldn't read and write at that time. He didn't learn to read and write until he was 30. He was Irish, and um, by the, four years later, by the time my mum's 18, she's the head girl of the grammar school, and she gets pregnant with me, and they get married. And of course, everybody says it's not going to last. And my granny actually tried to... She booked my mum an appointment at the doctor's to try and get rid of me. But of course, as soon as I was born, my granny changed my mind about what an awful person my dad was. And then my little brother arrived 13 months later. Um, we had a whale of a time. I don't know whether it's still true, but at that time, even if you couldn't read and write, if you were good at doing hard, difficult, dangerous work, and if you were really good at running other groups of illiterate Irish men doing hard, difficult, dangerous work, you could make loads of money. So my dad was a tin miner, he was a coal miner, he built tunnels, he was always underground. He saved up a lot of money. He had a lot of industrial accidents and near misses. And in 1989, he felt that he had outrun all of his lives. And at the same time, the pub in the village next to us called the Bell and Crown came up, to say it, up for sale. And we bought it. We moved into it. So in the summer of 1990, I'm 17 and my brother Matty is 16. He's 13 months younger than me. He's nine inches taller than me. And we're very full of ourselves because if you've never lived in a pub that your parents own in Yorkshire, I'll tell you that you have a fabulous time because everybody wants to be your friend. And we're used to being the odd kids of the strange, tattooed, illiterate Irishman who's married to the woman that goes to work in a suit even though she's not a teacher and we're both a bit too clever for our own good. Suddenly everybody wants to be friends with us and life is good. I'd really kind of just quite like to carry on with this bit of the story but obviously I can't, because I have to start telling you about when it becomes um, medical. And that happens one Saturday night, when we both work in the pub. And one of our perks for working in the pub is that our mother drives us down to a place called the Rainbow um, afterwards. So we go there. And we are having a great time there. And my brother is doing work experience at Drax Power Station, so we, he's extremely rich, because he's earning, I think, £120 a month, a, a week, which we just think is incredible. So he's buying the drinks, and I feel very spoilt. And I remember what I had to drink. I had a Red Witch, which is, in case you don't know, a half of cider with a shot of Perno and a dash of blackcurrant in it. <laughs> and I tell you, in 1990, I was the bee's knees. 
One of our customers offers me a lift home, and I've had enough, so I want to go, and I go to ask Matty if he wants to come with me. And he's, stand, he's leaning against the pool table. He's wearing a white T-shirt with the, the on in red letters, which is one of his favourite bands. And I ask him if he wants to come with me, and he says, no, he says, I'm going to hang around here. I might get lucky. And I throw him an eyebrow raise and a, what an arrogant fucker you are, head tilt. And I walk out of the rainbow. And about 40 minutes later, I'm kneeling next to him in the road, and he never, in any sense of the expression, gets lucky again. When the ambulance men arrive, I can immediately tell how serious they think it is from their demeanor. They say, you're a sister, so hop in. So I'm in the ambulance, and they're giving me little jobs to do. And one of them takes what looks like a set of shears and cuts off Matty's T-shirt. And you can't see the letters of the there anymore because it's just red with blood. And I say, I don't understand why there's so much blood. I can't see any blood. And the ambulance man says, it's coming from the back of its head, lass. And they take him to one hospital and they resuscitate him and they stabilize him and they take him to Leeds General Infirmary where they operate him on him. And by this time, I phoned my parents and we sit in this little room in Lee's General Infirmary for hours and hours and hours. And then we're taken to another little room next to the intensive care unit where a surgeon comes to talk to us. And the surgeon says to my dad, I've saved your son's life, but I do, we don't know yet whether that was the right thing to do. So it was 1990 and I was 17. I, I don't think I'd ever heard the expression head injury brain injury. And I always remember the question I asked, which now seems to me to be extremely silly, but I think it just shows how little I or my parents knew. I just, I said, will he walk? Without a notion that that was actually like quite a big thing to hope for. And the surgeon just looked at me with what I now see was sort of a deep, bone-deep weariness. And he just said, we don't know. What we did know was that the next 48 hours would be crucial. We knew that he had been given drugs to suppress him because they just wanted him to heal. But we knew that if he, the first thing was that he must survive these next 48 hours. So that's what we hoped for. And we sat next to his bed and we hoped. And I even prayed as an atheist. I, you know, as many atheists and extremists do. I had a quick chat with God. And what I asked God for was that he would live. Don't let him die, I kept thinking. Don't let him die, don't let him die. And what I didn't know then, the difference between me now and the girl then, is I didn't know that there are many fates worse than death. The bit I find hardest about telling this story is I don't... It breaks my heart to track the gradual erosion of hope. So for long months, we sat by my brother. He was in a full coma for 10 days, and then his eyes started to open at the rate of a millimeter a day. And we were full of hopes for his recovery, and we were learning everything we could about how to look after him. Nine months later, it became the hospital didn't want him anymore, and he couldn't go to rehab because there was nothing 
he, he'd made no progress. There was nothing for him to be sent to rehab to do. We'd seen other people come onto the ward and go to rehab, but he couldn't go. And we decided to bring him home, and we built a bungalow extension to the pub, and we looked after him at home. And we continued to hope, and I continued to hope. And then it was much later, it was after five years, that we finally asked ourselves the question, would he want to be alive like this? And that really is the question to ask, not really did we love him like this, but would he like to be alive like this? By this time, Tony Bland, he was a young man left in a similar condition after Hillsborough. At this time, his family became the first family to go to the court and to get permission to have his nutrition and hydration withdrawn so he would die. And that's what we decided to do, and we became the 12th. Matty became the 12th case for that to happen. I had to write and sign an affidavit to say that I wanted him to die. And my dad hadn't, didn't do it, because although by this time he had learned to read and write a bit, he still can't really do sentences, even now. So he just had to say that he agreed with his wife's statement. And I remember thinking, I never thought I would be jealous that somebody didn't know how to write words. The only legal way to bring, and this is still the case now, the only legal way for somebody's life to end from this situation is you take out their feeding tubes. And that's because legally it has to be a withdrawal of treatment. So not a positive treatment, the treatment has to be taken away. But what that means is you do then, effectively you're starving someone to death. And we'd been told it would take seven to 10 days um, and it took 13 days. And I didn't last out those 13 days. And my parents had to send me away on day 10. Henry Marsh has written a wonderful book called Do No Harm, which is the brain surgeon's perspective on all of this. And when I read his book last year, after I'd finished mine, um, I learned lots of things. I learned, actually, that Matty would have been operated on um, in an upright position propped up on a stool. And of course that makes so much sense, doesn't it? How could you cut into somebody's head if they were lying on a bed? But I'd never realized that before. It became symbolic for me of all the things I felt I still didn't understand. I also learned that what Henry Marsh thinks is one of the problems is that it's incredibly easy to save somebody's life with emergency brain surgery. Pretty much all of us could do it, apparently, after a quick bit of learning. You drill some holes, you let out some blood, easy peasy. What, of course, we haven't caught up with is we haven't caught up with the ethical, legal, moral, and emotional dimensions of our ability to prolong life when all that is left is a beating heart in a deteriorating body. Henry Marsh talks about the families of the people in this condition as the collateral damage. And that's what I have come to see myself as, the collateral damage. Because the way I feel of it now is that my brother's life ended in that road Whilst obviously the loss of him would always have been a terrible thing, I think it was the following eight years that did the terrible damage to me and to my parents and to actually a lot of Matty's friends as well.
As I wrote the book, I realized it wasn't about us, really. It was about this specific moment in the history of being human, that we can prolong life now, but we don't know what to do with it when we have. We don't know what the value of it is. Everything has changed. I get all these letters. It's quite a rare thing. Um, but I get lots of letters from people who have been in the situation, have been on the edges of the situation. What's really surprised me is that I get lots of letters, um, not from the relatives of young men who've been left in a persistent vegetative state after a road accident or a skiing accident um, or a rugby accident, though I do get all of those, but I get lots of letters from people whose relatives were old, who were at the end of their life, who were 90 and had a stroke, and in times gone by, they'd have been let go, and now they have a feeding tube shoved into them, and they're alive for several more months, and sometimes years, until they eventually die of some horrible infection, but often the family surrounding them has disintegrated because they've all disagreed about what to do. When I wrote my book, the figure about people in a persistent vegetative state was estimated to be 6,000. A few months later, after my book came out, it's now estimated to be 14,000. I don't have any answers to any of this. I know it's a big, huge, complicated subject. I just offer myself as a case study. Um, the psychosomatic illnesses, the post-traumatic stress disorder, the anxiety and the depression, the massive drinking, the panic attacks. Um, I kind of think that probably happens when you take a 17-year-old girl and make her do that. And what I think about all these thousands of people now is obviously it's about them. But actually it's also about the collateral damage because that's thousands of sets of siblings, parents, spouses and children that's an awful lot of other collateral damage. And as lots of other people have said, it, this is a societal problem. And I like to say that I don't have any answers because I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor and I'm not a, I'm not a surgeon. I'm just a girl, just a person. But this will be an increasing problem in our society. And I think maybe one of the things, we, it will increasingly affect more and more of us and it will become less rare and more people will have to know what it feels like, how philosophically and psychologically difficult it is to sit next to the body of the person you love best in the world and know that you really need them to die. Thank you.